Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the Windsors. Bombshells over Buckingham. <laughs> I mean, that's the sad irony of the last four years is I've advocated for so long for women to use their voice. And then I was silent. Um, were you silent or were you silenced? The latter. Look, I was really ashamed to say it at the time and ashamed to have to admit it to Harry, especially, um, because I know how much loss he suffered. Mm -hmm. But I knew that if I didn't say it, that I would do it. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. In those months when I was pregnant, all around this same time, so we have in tandem the conversation of, he won't be given security, he's not gonna be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? So a lot happened this weekend and to get into it about pop culture and what is happening across the pond, I would like to welcome Torrance to the pod. Hi guys, thanks for having me back. Um, I am not going to start with uh, doing a British accent because I will not put the listeners through such pain. Uh, I am really excited to be talking about this. I think that it's ex extremely culturally relevant. Um, I also think it's a long time coming, especially since this interview was extremely reminiscent of Diana's 1995 interview with the BBC. Um, but if you have guessed it, you guys, we are here to talk about Oprah's sit-down with uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle on Sunday night, um, an interview that was put on by Harper Productions and CBS Viacom um, with none other than the queen of American television, Oprah Winfrey herself. Um, I don't know how you guys want to start this. I think there's a lot to get into. Um, I think that Terrell and I are probably thinking the same thing, that the through line here is um, kind of like America, racism. And not just mm -hmm. from the press like we thought, but revealed to be also um, some racist remarks or conversations that happened within the uh, royal family regarding the skin tone of Archie. Um, and I think that there's a lot to unpack here, both from the family's perspective and the institution and the impact this is going to have on um, their popularity with the British people and across the world. Yeah, actually, we can definitely get into their the reaction from the British people. But how about we start here? What are some quick reactions? I think all of us have watched it. I know all of us have opinions. I always have opinions. But <laughs> Caleb, where are you coming from in all of this? Yeah, so I'm coming to you as a viewer who doesn't really follow the royal family. Um, like my mom has always had the weddings on or when that there's been a baby. So I've only seen weddings and babies. That's been my updates of the royals. And it's always been uh, quite... I don't know what another word is for it. Royal, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, it always seemed like a, an exciting thing, but it's kind of, I always thought it was kind of interesting that that Amer Americans have such fascinations with the royal family. Um, looking, watching this interview, I like watched the whole thing the other day and I was just kind of like, I, I just didn't really know the inner workings of the royal family that well. And I was struck by um and i guess it makes sense how outdated everything is mm. um like i almost found myself not super surprised that these things happened um but i also didn't really know what happened behind the scenes mm -hmm. so it was eye-opening for me but also um i couldn't say i was super surprised you know caleb something's really interesting about the way you mm. worded that is that Gail, so Oprah did some extra extra clips on CBS this morning, the following day on Monday, um, and also answered some questions. And I think it was Tony DeCopel asked Oprah, were you shocked by what she said about these revelations from the conversations within the royal family, or were you shocked that she said it? And I think that that is kind of the same, the same thing that I had as well, which was, I am shocked to be hearing it, but once you hear it, I think I would be lying if I said I was shocked that it happened, right? Because it is an archaic institution, um, one that 
admittedly, I have been fascinated with for most of my life. I was the one who got up in the middle of the night to watch uh, Prince William and Kate's wedding. Uh, when they got married, I also was glued to the television um, when Harry and Meghan got married. So I am a huge fan of the royal family and was uh, spent a lot of time watching and reading a lot about by Diana. I was really fascinated by her as a woman, by her impact on the royal family. And I think that that probably speaks to um, why I'm such a huge fan of Meghan Markle and the impact she's had on the royal family. Um, but I think I find myself most disappointed by the fact that it seems she wasn't able to be the catalyst for a progressive monarchy in the way that I think she really could have been. And I think this was a complete missed opportunity on their part. Yeah. Uh, Torrance, I think you put that perfectly. I was shocked to hear it, but when I really thought about the institution itself, I don't know if I was super surprised about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it took me a second to realize what they were. I think I looked it up actually to realize what they were talking about between the institution and the firm and the monarchy itself. And that was, I don't think looking at when I was watching the uh, interview, I don't know if, um, if Megan was delineating between the two um, very well. I thought she was just kind of using those, the firm and the institution as kind of the same. Although my understanding is the institution's kind of big picture and the mm-hmm. firm's more of the actual business part of it. Terrell, I'm, I'm interested. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think to your point on um, how the Duchess carried that conversation, I, I do think there was some thought behind stopping this deviation division between the institution itself and the firm and helping people kind of see that. And and Harry did a really articulate way of saying this while the firm may have the family in it and operate separate to the institution, the people who advise the queen are a part of the institution and play a role. Right. Um, So I, I think for me and very much going back to your points, Torrance, I grew up in a family that was um, fascinated by the royal family. Um, I've seen the royal weddings. I've always known and kept track when the babies were being born and so excited to see them. But I also follow the the little gossip on the side and the small wins that both Harry and Meghan have been able to have uh, against British tabloids. But um, I really think if I were to put a theme on this interview and kind of where I think we're headed, Princess Diana shines through a lot for me. Um, One, because even through the trauma and the traumatic experience that she went through, she still managed to save at least one of her boys, which I, I know through interviews and conversations was always something she was concerned and worried about. But also... I think she started planting the seeds for these conversations to happen, whether we knew it or not. And we're finally getting to a space where um, a royal can have this kind of conversation. Another royal interview that has come up since um, Sunday is uh, Princess Fergie. I do believe she's considered a princess. Duchess Duchess, Wherever she falls. Mm -hmm. Duchess. Duchess. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Duchess Fergie. Um, and her interview with Oprah, actually, where you could see the difference between how Diana didn't feel comfortable, but she let and explained some of her experiences. Megan didn't feel comfortable, but she she let us see and understand her experiences. And Fergie very much was in a space of I can tell you up until this line, but I recognize that I still play a role in the bigger picture. Right. Um, and now seeing those three differences and understanding the relationship that Diana and Fergie had, I think for me, I'm hopeful that one, we stop popularizing the crown, but two, the family itself can start having some real genuine conversations and it not always just be something about the institution, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, Terrell, and I actually want just for the re- the readers, the, excuse me, the audience sake, I, um, <laughs> Want to get into, I want to break down into that before we talk about some more specifics of the interview, which is this delineation between the institution or the firm, as those inside call it, um, mm-hmm. but and the family themselves, because I think there is a deeper conversation to be had about um, the impact of seeing 
a family or a single person, the queen, the monarch, um, as two different things, both a, both a grandmother and a family member, an individual and a person, and the representation of the monarchy, the head of state, an institution um, that she feels responsible mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. keep pushing forward and to survive. It's the, you know, it, but also how does she balance that with the way that she behaves or the decisions that she makes with her grandson, her children, um, relationships that are no different than the way that we have as average people. And I think that it's really important for us to, for sake of conversation, to separate them, but also not forget to have a conversation around the impact of the of doing that as well. Because I think that, like we talked Absolutely. a bit earlier off air, Sherelle, about the need for the family to do some healing, right? And like, if anyone in our family was having mm-hmm. a similar situation, we would all expect the privacy to have that conversation. But I was, I took issue with the kind of shortness of the response from Buckingham Palace um, and the kind of the lack there of words that they were using. And you kind of put into perspective for me that, of course, this is what we would all want. However, as an institution, mm-hmm. I think that they don't have to give us specifics about how they're going to respond to this as a family, but I think they do have to give specifics about how they're going to respond to this as an institution, what the institution sees these issues as and how they, what steps they're going to take to not just make a cultural change, but institute some sort of, um, I, I don't want to say that because it brings me, but I was going to say some sort of charitable or foundation that's going to work towards uh, these issues in the community, but that was kind of a part of the hypocrisy, right guys, is she's talking about her mental health yeah, This is reminiscent of Diana talking about her mental health while being in the royal family. The royal family, specifically Harry and his brother, head up a, a charitable organization about mental health. So that's where the, the crosshairs between mm-hmm. the institution and the family is frustrating to me because you can't say, well, this is a family matter. We don't need to answer for these issues when as an institution you champion mental health but you wouldn't give one of the members of your family or the institution itself wouldn't give the member of the family access to the healthcare that they needed to be mentally well, to survive, to thrive in the job that you're asking them to do. Yeah. And I I think one piece too to that, without diving too much into, into the interview to start is that, that moment of reflection that Prince Harry um, alluded to and allowed us right where he spoke to being at an engagement and speaking to a member of the press and hearing them give him cautionary tales and warning him that the UK is bigoted it's it's not just the media it's not just these these pockets it is the entirety of the country that they serve so I, I also think as we have this conversation and as we, we look at the family, the institution, the firm, all of those pieces, um, what healing does the UK need as well? And how does, how does the monarch and how does the institution help usher in that healing? Because yes, the media might've been the one that broke this story, but we can't ignore the fact that the media is the one who drove this story to even come to be about to a great degree. We'll get into the family piece again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, now that you mentioned kind of media, um, the the tabloid. Something that really sh- stuck out to me in the interview was um, was it Harry that was talking about the almost symbiotic relationship the tabloids and the monarchy have with each other? Yes. And I'm sitting over here, of course, again, not not fully, not ever really fully following the royal family and going. How does a royal monarchy that still exists and does have some sort of power and influence like get dictated by media tabloids? And then I thought, do people still read that? <laughs> I mean, obviously they must, but wow. Wow, that's just something that really stuck out to me. And you, you, when you kind of mentioned it, it kind of reminded me of that. Don't eat avocado toast. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it makes total sense, right, though, Caleb, once it's explained and explained to you, which is... Well, what would be the reason that a monarchy is still relevant and exists today, right? Um, It obviously is a figurehead, (laughs) but how does it continue to exist? Mm -hmm. Well, popularity. And so that symbiotic relationship between them and the press, which is, um, I don't really think, I mean, it's it's made to seem seem like a secret, excuse me, uh, 
But anyone who follows the royal family, I don't think is under any um, false understanding that that's not the case. At least I'm not. I've always known that they that they had an agreement with the press about what they what they will cover, what they will expose. They could, I mean, they've had the power to squash certain things mm-hmm. and not squash other things because, like they mentioned in the interview, the crown relies on the press to to curry positive favor with the British people in the world, and the press uses the crown to sell those newspapers, to sell those tabloids, to sell those advertisements because they know if they're salacious things in those tabloids about the, about the royal family that people are going to buy them. So yes, it's symbiotic, but at what point, and I brought this up to Terrell off air, is the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail? Mm. She's the queen of England. So to suggest that she has no power in some of these situations doesn't ring true. It doesn't feel true, but I guess how, how true is it, you know? And to... Right. We have to if if we get into this this segment, we have to get into a conversation about who the queen really is, because I, I do think that the title carries a little bit of distinction from who she is, especially as a monarch who didn't want the position, got thrusted into it because of some other family dealings and has always right had a struggle with the the modernization of the institution and has been burned a few times because of that modernization. So while I, I agree with you, Torrance, and, and I agree that we all know that um, they have that agreement and they, they use the press appropriately. I do also, and maybe I'm just over humanizing her, which I will take ownership of, but I do think to, this is an individual who has always struggled in these spaces and, um, I, I think your analogy is great. Maybe the tail has been wagging the dog more because of that struggle of how do I balance this? How do I walk on all four feet? My back feet just aren't working as well as I was hoping. Yeah. And actually I think that you're right, right? For people who aren't familiar with the Royal family or how the queen became, became to be the longest reigning monarch, monarch in England has to do or living monarch, excuse me. Um, with the unique position, she was not born into the direct line to the throne. Mm-hmm. Her uncle was meant to be was meant to be king, and due to falling in love with a divorcee, um, Wallace Simpson, and another moment where they were, where the monarchy was being called upon to modernize, because uh, like, like what you said, Terrell, these instances are almost like a family curse for the Windsors. Yes. I mean, start dating back to then, the abdication of the throne by the queen's uncle because they would not approve her, his marriage to a divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Then her father becomes king. And because her father dies a younger death than expected, um, she becomes queen. Then we face that again. We, we face that again with the monarchy with, uh, Prince, well, with Princess Diana and Charles. Um, and that was another modernization that almost ruins the monarchy. And now again, with another member of the family um, choosing love over the institution, we find mm-hmm. ourselves in the same situation. And I think um, the question has continued to be asked and um, unanswered, will the institution ever learn? Right? Because I think that society was at a different place when Diana had her interview in 95 on BBC. I don't know if society was there yet, right? We're talking about the most, maybe the most beloved woman on planet Earth at the time. Yeah going through a very open, tragic situation where she was being vilified despite popular support across the world, and that didn't move the monarchy to change. I think that now we might actually be in a cultural place where it's going to be incumbent upon the institution and the family to be more open in their communication about how they're addressing this because the world is going to require that of them, I think. I don't think they can get Mm -hmm. away with a smear campaign against... Meghan Markle the way they could against Diana. Yeah. And I'm, I would like to see them use this opportunity to do better because I think that they, it was advantageous for them to stick to their guns in 95 with Diana, but it is not, in my opinion, I mean, and maybe I don't understand the British public quite as well, but it doesn't feel advantageous to me to make a villain out of Meghan Markle. That doesn't feel like well, the right decision for the monarchy. And I'm a pro, you know, I'm not pro monarchy. I mean, I don't want to say that by any means, but I'm not someone who's saying get rid of it. You know, like I'm not here to take the fight. 
I'm simply okay yeah. with it existing in the form that it does until the British people decide what's right for them. But it does feel like if you're interested in the long-term existence of the monarchy, you would take this moment and opportunity to address these things and show we're changing, we are growing, and we're still relevant. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring in the British people um, because the interview aired for us in um, the UK, the UK, for us in the US and North America on Sunday. It didn't air in the UK until Monday. And snap polls from BBC actually found that the majority of individuals felt that the interview was disrespectful. It betrayed the country. It was rude. Um, and then then you have the fallout of Pierce Morgan, right? He, he says some of the most vilified vile things. and just literally vile things. But the, they didn't get rid of him. He walked off. And while we can cheer and be happy about that, and it looks like they're not going to ask him to return, he got the option to leave. Not because he did something wrong, but because he got fed up. And now the the um, Good Morning Britain is able to kind of walk away from him and not deal with that controversy. So I do agree with you, Torrance, that it feels like we're in a moment where we can have some of these conversations. However, it does still feel like the the monarch and the institution itself can do something similar to what they did to Diana. Maybe not with as much, and maybe we shouldn't be making these accusations, but um, maybe with not as much success. Absolutely. So if you, if you don't mind for a second, Terrell, I'm, I wanted to come in and I wanted to talk a little more about the specifics of the interview and kind of give a rundown of a few of the things that uh, Megan and Harry shared. I think more of the, the larger uh, biggest takeaways rather um, which is that one, Oprah asked her if she went silent or if she was silenced. Uh, and Megan said that she was silenced by the institution, but rather she, she was also really kind in that she explained that it was explained to her by the firm that if they just followed the protocol of no comment, her family, her friends, her, no comment, that the firm and the institution would protect them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became evidently clear over time. And she said she she wouldn't see anything for months. And then she'd have conversations with uh, with her friends who would call her and say, you know, quote, hey, Meg, this is what's being said about you. You're not being protected. Uh, in the interview, it was evidently clear that that was very true, that she had no idea what was being said. She was assuming that they were being protected by the firm, the communications department, um, and that they weren't. And then she touches on the points that, you know, the firm has come out and spoken out against false allegations against other members of the royal family with the press, but stayed mums the word on anything regarding Harry and Meghan. And I think it's those kinds of things that specifically that is kind of um, the racist undertones of the institution. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that like, I, I don't, and we're not going to get into this because I, I hate to give it any airtime, but when they can come back and refute the claims against Prince Andrew regarding his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein over and over again, but say nothing, absolutely nothing to protect Meghan and Harry, it speaks volumes about the priorities of the people there. And she said that, you know, that their relationship with the queen is very close in that um, they've only had a warm relationship with her ever. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the people that work for the institution, the firm as they call it, one, who knows what the makeup of that cat of that yeah. that cast, excuse me, that staff is. Who knows how long they've been working there? Who knows what the vested interest because here's the thing, we have to understand that the firm, the people who work for them, the comms department, the finance department, the charity department, all of these things are, are obviously outsourced to entire departments of people that work for the palace. And they do, let's not forget, have a vested interest in the long-term uh, yeah. life of the monarchy as well. It's their career. So if they don't if, if they don't see something as advantageous for the institution, not the family, then they are probably going to make the decision that's advantageous for the institution or advise for the or advocate rather to the queen and advise her to take the action that's advantageous for the institution and not what might be right for her relationship with her grandson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um Something about the interview that um, you kind of just reminded me of in the firm and the institution is one of those departments is HR. And the fact that Megan talked about like just looking for help and went to HR and they're like, I mean, the way she described it was that basically they 
oh yeah, we see that this is all terrible, but oh, we can't do anything. You're not a paid employee. And I'm like, well, surely if she's part of the family, like something can be done. And I think I was, I think I was a little bit shocked at that. Yeah. I definitely think that was one of the more shocking outcomes of the interview for me is that there seemed to be such a stark uh, difference or characterization, categorization um, between being a paid employee, i.e. someone with the title, someone in that space Mm -hmm. versus the world that they had pushed Harry and Meghan in of we're still a part of the family. We still have the same threat assessment. We still have the same um, level of uh, respect and diligence to the queen, but we need to separate because of all the external things. And it really seemed like, and I think this plays into some points that you've made, Torrance, that was one of the moments where the institution and the family were one, and it it made no sense to me. It didn't make sense to me either. And, yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to, to draw on, right? Is because, so to touch on like the specific news, she revealed that mm-hmm. she was having suicidal thoughts, um, and that that she was that thing, people were saying, people at the institution were saying. I, people in the firm, rather, were saying to her, you know, you should just stay home, that you're everywhere, all over the tabloids right now. And she said, yeah, I'm everywhere, all over the tabloids, mm-hmm. but I haven't left my home in two months at all. Or I think actually I, I'm yeah. misspeaking. She didn't hadn't left yeah. for four months other than twice. And she's like, yeah, I'm everywhere, but I'm nowhere. And, you know, she said that she was having suicidal thoughts, that she didn't want to live anymore, and that when she went to get help, from human resources, like you mentioned, Caleb, that they told her that because she's a member of the family and not, say, a staff member of the firm, that they couldn't help her. But there's nowhere for her to turn otherwise. That was the delineation that I think sometimes is way too gray, Terrell, right? Like, she's a working member of the royal family, right? Working member. There's no HR department for her to go to. There's no support for her to go to, but that's also a title she can lose afterwards while still being the Duchess of Sussex, right? She's no longer a working member anymore, but she's still the Duchess of Sussex. Like, I don't under, Mm -hmm. like, what, where is the line and where do the resources and support come in on that line? Because of course I understand the difference between someone who's married into the actual family and, you know, a private secretary for the prince, right? Like, obviously that's a very clear thing, but I think that for the members of the family, it becomes so gray and almost only under convenience. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Or yeah, my 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 confusion, my confusion with the whole thing was, like you said, it it's a line, but it's gray, right? So, what if you're part of the family and you're being controlled by the institution and uh, you haven't left the place in four months, like? Who who supports the family? I it just doesn't make sense to me. That's all. And maybe this this touches it, back on. Well, I was I was just going to add. Maybe this touches back on that piece too of. And I I don't like where this line of thought is taking me. So bear with me. But is was there this expectation from HR that y'all are a family? You go talk to them. You you are you do the family thing. You don't go the the work corporate, I'm going to HR to speak to this, even though it might deal with staffers, because I, I question if at the end of the day, they were also thinking, y'all are the ones who employ us. So if you go speak to, let's say, the Queen or um, Prince Charles or um, Prince Harry and say, here's how I'm feeling, and, and they send that up, they'll do the job faster than we ever could. I'm not saying that's an appropriate thought, because again, just as y'all mentioned, if the family's the one who's doing it, you have no outlet then. But I I question in that gray space, if from a staffer's perspective, it's a, well, y'all are the family. The family should have that conversation. So, Terrell, one of the other things I really wanted to discuss, and I think that is probably um, specifically the most controversial, the biggest <laughs> bombshell um, from the interview is that Megan revealed and then Harry confirmed, of course, when he came on to the interview, that there had been a conversation with a member of the royal family had a conversation with Harry um, before Archie was born regarding what the skin tone mm-hmm. of Archie would be. 
um, and how dark would he be? And I don't think that we can have that conversation um, without disconnecting it from the other thing that 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 Megan explained, which was, now I'm no Brit and I don't know <laughs> all their laws, so I'm not going to misspeak here. But essentially, there are protocols slash accords that date back to King George, George, uh, that would have that would have naturally. Um, by normal process or historically historical process mm-hmm. made Archie a prince, which would have got given him protection under the law. Um, and for whatever reason, reasons that were not explained to Megan, reasons that were not explained to Harry, reasons that were not explained to the public, there were changes in that before Archie was born so that he would not receive a title and that he would not re- mm-hmm. thus not receive protection. And I want to, I want to make sure that I represent Megan's thoughts here clearly because she was not hung up on a title. That is not what she cared about. She cared about the protection of her child because he was being born into the line of the throne, which makes him a th- which makes him um, makes him a target for people who who have ill will against the royal family. Mm-hmm. Something he did not choose, and that he should be entitled to that protection. But also that why then? She questioned. Why are we changing this now? Why is Archie not entitled to this yeah. thing that everyone traditionally in this family has been entitled to? That was their birthright. She was like, this has nothing to do with him. Me wanting him to have this. I want him to have his birthright and make this decision for himself yeah. one day. Where I think that we all know, if we, you paid attention, Terrell. That was that was message mm-hmm. to the public as their choice. That was message to us as something Harry and Meghan were deciding to do, which like when I read it, I I took it as a very progressive thing Mm -hmm. that they were doing. But that was really astonishing to come to find out that that was not at all how that played out. That they, that she was completely open to her son having his birthright and making that decision as an adult on his own the way Harry did. And so I want to hear what your thoughts on, you know, obviously the race thing. Yeah, one thing I want to add for our listeners too, um, just because this narrative is starting to come out and I, it angers me and frustrates me a lot. Um, that conversation is not appropriate in any sense. I don't, you can have a mixed race child and at no point is it appropriate for a family member or anyone to question if that child's going to come out a certain skin tone or not. And to try to push that narrative and try to use that as an excuse for, well, she was overreacting or they were overreacting is so it does such a great job to show how far behind we still are that in America, it wasn't until the 1960s that an interracial couple could even be together and it'd be legal. So I just want to set that stage there of for anyone listening or anywhere that this soundbite goes there is no excuse for that conversation to have happened and their response is appropriate on all protocols, in my opinion, as an African-American male. But Caleb, I know you had something to add. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the way I saw that was, uh, I, I first saw it on the, on the interview and my reaction was probably the same as Oprah's in real time by myself on my couch. But um, I, as I kind of did a little bit more reading into the royal family, I, again, like it was, sh- it was shocking to hear it. And then I don't know if it was that surprising afterwards. And the way I see the Royal family is it's like this bloodline. Megan is outside of that and now in it. And uh, suddenly I'm not so surprised that this kind of outdated monarchy, if I, if I must say, um, if some, someone in it said that because, Oh, a baby with a darker skin that's not going to look like the monarchy anymore terribly outdated not appropriate disgusting really but again i don't know if i'm surprised there needs to be real change yeah there needs to be real change well and i megan worded it very well about you know some of these pieces of information draw you to certain conclusions and assumptions and they were being very she's being very careful about not trying to say that things are just fact when she doesn't know. But that's why I brought up the part about the changes in protocol and his title, et cetera, because like you said, the conversation around his skin tone has a little bit to do with the fact that I can only imagine the train of thought was, well, someone with a darker skin tone doesn't really fit the royal family. Mm -hmm. And 
I might be projecting. I mean, my, my God, it's totally possible, but I can't understand why they would change those protocols other than having a prince who is not yep. white and what that looks like for the royal family. And I'm not even saying that that's the choice of the queen. I'm not saying that's the choice of... I'm saying that the people in the firm who are probably institutionally and systemically racist make that decision because they maybe they think it's going to protect the monarchy or advise that decision. But rather the conversation itself is completely unacceptable. And as a mixed race person who has been witness to these conversations in my life, I can say one, it's, uh, it's obviously unacceptable and inappropriate, but two, there is zero other reason that you'd be asking that question other than to know how dark they are going to be. You sure as heck yeah. aren't concerned nope. about how and let's put in the context to too. It's, it's not like Archie was that close in the line of succession, right? For this to occur, a lot of pieces would have to fall for him to even be in the conversation of taking the throne. And this is generations after Elizabeth and Charles, even his parents, before we get there. But it, it's funny you mentioned that. Um because I, I think back to Queen Elizabeth, right? People didn't think she was going to be queen and look at how her story played out. So was there really a, a cautionary tale, if you will, of we've seen how this goes. We've seen how easy it is for the line to change. Was this really a, a protectionist stepping in and saying, just in case this is the best policy to move forward? Also, was this a, a further attempt to ensure that the line that has been created, the line that exists, always remains that line? Because if Princess Diana, and this is a, another thing that might stir some controversy, Princess <laughs> Diana would be alive today if she had the husband Meghan Merkel has right now. Hands down, full stop. Harry showed up for her and stepped into roles and places that Charles never did. And maybe it's inappropriate for me to say this because I don't know as much about his life as I would, but I've always felt that Harry is more like his mother and William is more like his father. And seeing that line and the security and the protection that that line has gotten since Harry went off and married someone he truly loved really leads me to question who was in that conversation and who really thought, even though he's so far away from even being in the conversation of abdication and ending up on the throne, because we know how these things can play out in a few years, we're going to make this move. Yeah. And we saw the consequence of Harry being there for Megan was financially cut off and stripped of titles too. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you you brought a really interesting point that I I hadn't even zoomed out enough to really think about it, Terrell, um, regarding the institutional um, kind of motivation behind the way that they've treated Megan, the way that they have maybe engineered, maybe, and I say that allegedly, <laughs> allegedly for legal pur purposes, um, manufactured situations in in the institution to not give um, Archie a title is. You're right. They know that we don't always know what's going to happen in the line of succession and look no further because I forget this is the case that there was controversy around Queen Elizabeth, then a princess marrying Prince Philip, who was not a prince. Uh, well, was a prince in his own country and his own family, but not, he was made a prince here uh, because of a number of things, but because of the family that he came from, the lack of purity of the bloodline, etc. cetera. Um, but she was in love with him. And because she was not going to be in line for the throne, yep. she was allowed to marry him. But now she's the queen. And so there might be some foresight there. And I would hate to I would hate to believe that like racism could be that pernicious, right? And but I think that we'd be shot we'd be, you know, naive to say that it hasn't been for mm -hmm. hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um and then I did wanna make sure that we touch on something that's really important. I know that we all care about it quite a bit, which is mental health. I think that it's really disappointing that after the things that Diana said in 95 regarding the way that the um, the press and the royal family um, treated her, 
and the effect that had on her mental health that they just never grew and learned from that and falsely advocated for uh, organizations that are um, promoting mental health and mental wellness and getting help when you need it, and then not changing the way that they behave as an institution or as a family um, to get a member of their own family help. It's really disappointing. And I think that if nothing else comes out of this, the conversation around um, around race and around mental health must be something that remain uh, relevant and that the pressure on the royal family um, is consistent and persistent until we do see some sort of um, change from them. Because like you said, I don't think it was wrong for you to say that maybe Diana would be sitting here today had she had a husband like Harry. Because Megan said at the end of the end of the interview that Harry saved her, mm-hmm. but that you want you have to want to be saved, and that he made a decision, a hard decision, that saved her life and saved their family. Yeah. Because when someone is asking you for help, then give it to them. And Diana asked for help and never ever got it. Mm-hmm. However, to end on a high note, um, I, I think that that's a part of it. Is that like, as a fan of the of the family, I hope that they find healing with one another. They are grandchildren, grand you know, their grandmothers, fathers, brothers. I hope that they find peace with one another as a family, and as an institution. I hope that they take this opportunity to address some of these societal and, and cultural problems that they have, um, and become more relevant by joining the conversation and not just staying out of it. I'd agree with that. I think that, I think when I think of the path forward from here, I think, um, of course this is an American that doesn't follow the Royals that, that, that much again. But, um, I think the path forward here for, I guess the monarchy, all of it, the institution, the firm, all of it is, um, if I would guess, I think I, I think I do err towards the side that like some of this is a family matter. So handle it privately as a family. But the rest of the actual business side of things or the firm side of things, I think they should be ban- transparent. They should at the very least acknowledge what they what happened, what was wrong about it, and give us some actionable items that they're working on right now to to correct and update the monarchy. <laughs> Yeah, I. So I know we talked about this a lot offline, but I think in this conversation, I've changed a little bit as well. Of just like in America, it's time for those conversations to happen, mm-hmm. and I think for the institution, it's time for it to diversify, and not in like a tokenism sense, but in a yeah. genuine. When you look at the institution, it can't just be people of color that are on your cleaning staff. It can't just be people of color who are cooking for you and, and feeding you. Mm-hmm. The advisors to the queen and to the to the royal family need to be more cognizant of how they're being portrayed. And even beyond this, granted, I, I recognize and own that they can't step into this realm because of the constitution, but... When you look at the House of Commons, when you look at the structure of the UK, very similar to what it is in in the US, it is overwhelmingly white. And when you have situations like this, when you have opportunities to really stand up and say things, if you don't have the representation there to help you understand how to be thoughtful and present in a cultural moment, you're going to fail. And the next time the queen takes audience with um, the prime minister, there has to be some recognition that both parties, labor and um, conservative, need to think about, are they really representing the UK and, and the future of the UK, or are they stuck in this protectivism sense of what they think or what they hope the UK will stay? And just one last thing, because I think that it's important because I know you believe it as well. When, when, when Terrell and I are talking about race specifically and representation, whether that be here in America or the scenario with the royal family, it's never just be for the sake of politics or for the sake of, like he said, not tokenism. 70%, upwards of 70% of the Commonwealth mm-hmm. is our people of color. The queen, 70% of, of her subjects are people of color. We are asking 
the monarchy to represent its people the way that we have constantly asked our government here to represent its people and be representative yeah. of that population. Um, I'm sure that there'll be more on that when uh, when we yeah. hear more from the palace. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what the next moves are. So this has been a great conversation. And to close us out, I want to kind of try out a new segment where we get to just reflect on something that happened this week. No more than two minutes. We just go on a tangent. So Caleb, take us on a tangent. All right. I'll take us on a tangent, Terrell. Dangerously likely to take us on a tangent. (laughs) Two minutes Um, are up. (laughs) Well, okay. So (laughs) today's... Uh, Caleb's tangent today is, uh, (laughs) so (laughs) what I really kind of want to just like shed light on is I was, uh, reading about the, uh, COVID stimulus, uh, bill in the Senate and it it passed the Senate this week and that's hooray. It goes to the house and we're expected to pass it there. And that's awesome. And I didn't realize how many like great things are in the bill, but I think that's a conversation we'll talk about a little bit more in the next week. Uh, what I'm really, what really struck out to me is what I thought was just the weird power play by Joe Manchin in the middle of these Senate negotiations, um, which ended up taking some of the employment benefits down and um, uh, the income levels of how uh, certain income levels don't get the stimulus checks and whatnot. But um, something that, uh, I was reading an article about all of this and they were talking about how Joe Manchin doesn't support uh, removing the filibuster. And they were like, okay, so if, so if you're going to have Joe Manchin do weird power plays to show that he's bipartisan or whatnot um, in the middle of negotiations that are wildly popular for a bill that's wildly popular, like how are we going to pass things in the future? Like the voting rights act, Um, with all the voter suppression going around in the country right now. And something that I just, it just kind of left a, gave me something to think about was that um, Joe Manchin isn't like the first thing you focus on in that scenario. It's getting, the first thing you focus on is actually starting to get momentum and urgency amongst the party to pass something like this. You have over 250 voter suppression uh, laws have been introduced in state houses across the country. It's disgusting. It's racist. It's abhorrent, really. But but getting Joe Manchin on board um, of somehow doing something with the filibuster or passing uh, something like HR one, the voting the Voting Rights Act, uh, isn't step one. It's more like step three or four in that process. And that just really, uh, I wasn't really thinking about it like that. I just opened my mind up a little bit. What about you? Take us on a tangent, Torrance. Absolutely. And and bear with me here and do not judge me for my tangent because it's super specific, but I've actually <laughs> had this on my mind all week. So I want to say that all of our people on social media, friends, family, that were tweeting, Facebook posting, et cetera, after the original um, stimulus bill was passed about the money that they got from Donald Trump that never actually came from Donald Trump got, you know, like, let's be clear that stimulus Wait, money is not from it. Donald Trump. That is not <laughs> what happened. But everyone was saying, you know, Donald Trump gave us this and Donald Trump gave us that check, et cetera, et cetera. It was ignorant. It was false at the time. That's not what happened. And if the Republican Party had gotten their way, they wouldn't have gotten that money anyway. But I just am going to ask those same people to allow their ignorance to continue to giving praise to Joe Biden this time. Because if you're going to be ignorant about it, then then please join us in your ignorance this time and make sure that you give credit where it's due because this stimulus pet, this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that passed the Senate passed with zero. And let me repeat that zero votes from the Republican party. And it will not be thanks to them that you got a bill, that you got assistance on rent, that you got a child child tax credit, that you got et cetera, et cetera. And I will not hear it. I want people to be informed. And if you're going to give credit to someone, by golly, please let it be the right person. Yeah, damn right. (laughs) Well, it's funny you mentioned ignorance because... Thank you, Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the new 
thanks Obama meme. Is that what we just did? <laughs> Anywho, it's I, I did it work. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned ignorance because my my all encompassing thought has been sexism lately. Ironically, it is we just had um, National International Women's Day and we're in the month, but. Recently, there's been some controversy around Taylor Swift and a joke that came out in a Netflix um, movie that she didn't agree with. She came out against and and just said it was tacky. It was outdated. And the amount to which cisgendered white men decided that they were going to lose their shit over her saying that it was tacky and unnecessary frustrate me. You can dislike Taylor Swift all you want. You can not like her music, but the joke was tacky and what she was saying was justified. You can disagree with her means, but at the end of the day, what she said was tacky or what what they said was tacky and unnecessary. And for all the cisgender white men there, not trying to call you sexist in this moment, but stop feeling like women need to like appease you. Another great example of that is Pierce Morgan and his constant attack of Meghan Markle because she rejected him on an alleged dinner that they went out to when she met Harry, which I still don't believe, but that's neither here nor there. Literally white men get your shit together. That's my rant. One quick question, Terrell. Oh God. What was the joke? I don't, I still don't know because I haven't watched the movie. I just didn't. (laughs) I didn't I didn't not watch the movie because of the joke. I didn't watch the movie because I just don't find comedies that interesting, especially Netflix comedies, because they're always low budget and they're kind of like lit. So I didn't watch it. But it was some joke about Taylor Swift always having a new man and her oh, mom man. always having a new man. And it's it's 2021. It's like, like come up with a better joke. <sighs> Stop slut shaming people. Also not calling Taylor Swift a, sh- a slut. But <laughs> wow. Like <laughs> You can date more than one person. If my parents didn't date more than one people, I wouldn't be here. Like, ugh. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for taking us on a tangent, Terrell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you, Terrell, because you, you, you know that I agree that it's just a lazy joke, bar none anything Literally. else. Yeah. Literally. No, thank y'all. I'm really excited to continue the segment as we move forward. And I'm excited for our next episode where we get into it a little bit about how COVID relief has panned out, fingers crossed, and <laughs> talk about some criminal justice issues, i.e. George Floyd. I think that's it for today. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.